Good morning. Good to see you today. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here at Heart of Life. Last night, I was at the Saturday night service in Harrisonville, which has been running for just three weeks now. And there were 15 kids there, which is just amazing. Yeah. And we want to be sure that we have enough teachers and workers. And so we don't have to turn anybody away when they walk in. And so I just want to make an appeal. If you are interested in helping kids meet Jesus on Saturday nights in Harrisonville, email church at heartoflife.org. That's church at heartoflife.org. And I'm talking just one Saturday a month, something like that. We'll get you in a rotation if you're interested. Church at heartoflife.org and we'll get you connected. Let's take a moment to pray. God, you said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then you invited us to pray to you as Lord of the harvest to send workers into your field. And so we're asking that you would do that right now and make good on your promise that the little ones would come to find Jesus. And this morning, as we look into your word, would you do what you have promised? And would you raise the dead and dying things within us that these dry bones would come to life again? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For as long as I can remember, there have been two primary approaches to life, selfishness and selflessness. The selfish and the selfless. The selfish approach sounds like what it is, me, myself, and I. What do I need? What do I want? How does this affect me? And now whether we use that word selfish or not, there's a certain aspect of this self-focused approach that is necessary. After all, if you don't take care of yourself, if you don't feed yourself, if you don't clothe yourself or sleep well, things start to go bad for us, don't they? I took a flight to Indiana last weekend, and while the flight attendants were giving their spiel, uh, they made that famous statement about oxygen masks. Maybe you know it. It goes, in case of emergency, put one on yourself first and then take care of your neighbor next to you. Why? Because there's truth to the story that if you aren't taken care of, there's no guarantee that you're gonna be around long enough to care for those around you. And it makes sense. We can get behind that conceptually, but what happens when we take that selfish approach too far? Well, that's when we start to see the very worst in humanity. We become greedy. We hoard and we neglect those around us and we find ourselves playing to the tune of Darwin's survival of the fittest, taking what's mine and frankly, taking what isn't. Taking others for granted and worse, taking advantage of others, thereby killing our relationships. Selfishness, that is being fully focused on the self, does not really lead to life. 
And so sometimes we swing then to the other extreme and we try to be selfless. Here, the focus is not so much on the self, but on others. I'm focusing on you. What do you need? What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I take this off your plate so you don't have to worry about it? And while this starts to sound noble on the surface, it can ironically become just as problematic and self-serving as the first approach. Because after all, as humans, as humans have adapted to the difficulties of the world around us, we've come to realize that like wolves, we do better traveling in packs. The lone wolf doesn't usually hunt very well, but when you're together, and so we sacrifice for the greater good, for the whole, because we know that our backs are covered too. There's actually a self-serving motivation sometimes when we work as a group, isn't there? And it happens when we, what happens then when we do this to the extreme is resentment starts to build inside and frustrations bubble over of, is everyone here pulling their weight or is it just me? Unvoiced expectations turn into demands, conflict ensues. And so it seems that even selflessness of being entirely less than ourselves and focused only on other people actually doesn't necessarily lead to life either. Now look at this spectrum here, selfish to selfless. If you took a second to place yourself, where would you place yourself on that continuum? Far over to the left, maybe more to the right, maybe somewhere in the middle. Just take a moment and plot yourself where you think you'd be. But whatever the case, what if I told you that the line between selfish and selfless isn't the whole picture? What if there's another option? An option that actually leads to life and it's better than the counterfeit promises that these two approaches try to offer. That's what we're going to take a look at over the next few weeks as we continue in a series we've been walking through this fall called Head to Toe. Head to Toe, where we've been considering Jesus's invitation into the life that is life, into the abundant life that he has for us, the life that he describes is able to love God with all that we are, heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the peace that we're considering this morning in learning to love God is learning to love our neighbor and learning to love God and neighbor with our whole soul. What does it mean to love God and neighbor with our soul? Jesus has something to say about this in Luke chapter 9. You can look there with me. Luke 9, verses 23 to 25. We're going to read through it without comment and then dig in, starting now with verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? You may be wondering, Peter, where is the word soul? It's actually throughout, but we miss it in our English translations. 
See, the word translated as soul in Jesus' command to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the word suke. We learned about this last week, suke, which sounds like another English word, the word psyche, where we get our, uh, and, and the word psychology all comes from that same root. Suke is where we get our English word psyche. And in the Greek, suke is translated into multiple different words like breath and soul and self and life. And sure enough, this word is all over our passage. We're going to reread it now in, in place, putting the word soul. And listen to what it says. Then Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their, what? Soul will lose it. But whoever loses their soul for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? All of a sudden, we realize, wow, Jesus isn't just talking about life and death here. He's talking about eternal life. And we saw some of this last week. But lest we reduce this into a theoretical conversation about the sweet by and by and completely miss the fullness of what Jesus is really saying, I want us to recognize Jesus isn't punting this to some future day. He is also connecting it, this whole conversation on losing and saving our souls with our present. He does this in verse 23 when he says, we are to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, daily. This isn't just about forever and ever. No, 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 no. It has present implications for us right now. And that is where we're going to focus this morning on how we presently, practically love God and one another with our souls in the day-to-day -day stuff of real life. And it seems the secret sauce, if you will, is embedded in the first piece, deny themselves. Deny. Now, what does it mean to deny ourselves? One of my favorite restaurants in all of Kansas City is a Brazilian place called Fogo de Show. Fogo de Show. I've loved it for a long time, long time, mainly because it's out of my price range, <laughs> but it's half price during lunch hours. And occasionally I'll splurge or I'll find somebody who will splurge on me and we go, but man, pork, they got it. Chicken, they got it. Steak, ribs, filet. Lamb, it's crazy. Like it's not even 10 o'clock in the morning and my mouth is watering just thinking about this. Because the best part is it is all you can eat. One price, all you can eat meat. And you don't even have to get up from your table. If they just bring it right to you. Like they, they, go, they go back to cook it over an open flame. They bring it to your table and you just point where on your plate you want it and they plop it right there for you. 
And then they go back and they get you more. And they go back and they get you more. Now they have this like salad bar that you have to get up and walk over to the, I don't want to pick my stuff from the garden. I want to sit and have the meat brought to me. Talk about luxury. I'm sorry to the vegetarians in the room. But you can imagine after an hour or so of this, they come up to you and they say, would you like some dessert? And it's no, no surprise my response goes something like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to deny myself dessert. There was no denying whatsoever that took place in that meal. Saying no to dessert isn't denial. The whole meal was indulgence. And I'm concerned that there are times when we as Christians walk around and we tout the words of Jesus saying, true life is found when we deny ourselves, but we have no real clue what that means. We think that just because we don't drink, we're denying ourselves. Yet we indulge in our pride and in our greed. Or we think that just because we don't party on the weekends, we're denying ourselves, but we're sharks in our business and we gut out the competition and we exploit our coworkers and our neighbors in life and we think I'm denying myself. I, I just want us to consider, what if denying ourselves, denying our souls, so to speak, is a specific call that needs to be individualized to each one of us? Because what if there isn't some blanket approach to self-denial, but a way to apply denial principles to ourselves? Otherwise, it's not self-denial at all. It's actually still self-indulgence. We're just denying some mask that we're wearing, but it's not really us ourselves. It's not really our souls that we're denying. See, what I'm saying is you cannot deny what you do not know. We cannot deny what we do not know, what we have not discovered about ourselves. Otherwise, we may unintentionally be calling selfless self-denial what is actually still self-indulgence. And in this way, the, the selfish, selfless continuum falls short. We need something more. And to illustrate this, I drew up a graph to help demonstrate. Take a look at this. See, rather than plotting ourselves along the continuum of selfish to selfless, I believe there are two paths that God has for us. Because what if Jesus isn't trying to move us laterally from this to this, but instead is trying to raise us up from the old self to the new? And the way in which we do that is through growing in both self-discovery and self-denial, both together together. Now, now self-discovery is the modern craze, it seems. It's the obsession of pop psychology. Know who you are, get into your personality, all this kind of stuff. But it quickly becomes ammunition for excusing unhealthy behavior. Well, I got Snow White on my Disney princess quiz. And so you need to treat me like seven dwarves that run and do my bidding. Or I'm an ESFP or I'm an INTJ and so I need to do this and not that and you need to work around me. But that posture doesn't really lead to life, does it? In fact, this kind of self-discovery borders on self-obsession 
And it's a self-orientation that places ourselves in the middle of our relational solar systems and forces everyone else to revolve around us, me, my needs, my wiring. And as we climb the incline of self-discovery, if we're not careful, we're just going to fall down into the abyss of selfishness. It doesn't work on its own. We still find ourselves dead in our old selves. And so the way of religion shows up and it says, no, 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 deny, 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 sacrifice yourself for others, sacrifice yourself for God, whatever it might be. But when we take this too far and we don't learn when to voice that we're being hurt or taken for granted, two things happen. We inevitably grow in resentment toward other people and we wonder why the people around us keep using us to their own demise. Meaning never holding others accountable in life so they never really grow up and they continue to underfunction because we've been overfunctioning for them all along. They don't do enough because we keep doing too much and they never grow up. See, in isolation, one side takes advantage of others and the other side is taken advantage of. Which is why what we need is not a lateral move from left to right, but a resurrection that pulls us up out of the depths of the old self and into the new. Because truth is, God is raising the dead to life here. And as we put off the old self, we discover the new life emerging. But how? It's not through one path or the other, but both together. Both together through self-discovery and self-denial, life is found. And Jesus actually did this himself. I'll point out just one instance. In John 13, Jesus is famously gathered uh, in the upper room with his closest friends and they're sharing a meal and then he goes to wash their feet. We, we know this story. It's a beautiful story. Many of us do. But there's a little detail that I've never noticed in verse three until preparing for this message. It's staggering. It says, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Do you see the sequence here? Jesus knew who he was. He knew what God had given him. And then what? Then he's able to lay it down freely and pick up the towel. Self-discovery self-denial. And to show this isn't just a one-time fluke, Paul makes the exact same point in Philippians 2.6 that Jesus, being in very nature God, made himself nothing. He knows who he is and he can lay it down. Self-discovery, self-denial. Why? Because there's no greater love than to lay down your life for others. That's what Jesus says in John 15, 13. Greater love is no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. And that word life, wouldn't you know it, is that same word suke. 
not bios in the Greek. Bios, we get biology from. That's physical life. But suke, this soulish life. This is the essence of who we are. This is our personality. This is our temperament and all of those things. He's saying you've got to lay down your soulish life for other people if that's what love looks, because that's what love looks like. And this is the life that Jesus calls us to, that we would love God and neighbor. How? By laying it all down. But we cannot lay down what we haven't first realized that we're holding on to still. And so if Jesus needed to know who he was in order to lay it down, then we're going to do the same thing. We're not going to try this any differently than Jesus. We're not, we're, we're not any better than Jesus. He needed to know who he was to lay it down. We're going to try to learn who we are to lay it down. And we're going to deal more next week with that self-denial piece of really laying it down. But before we can do that, we've got to devote the rest of our time this morning into exploring self-discovery. And we're going to do so with a time-tested tool that, uh, for understanding the soul, for understanding the suke, and that's the four temperaments by Hippocrates. Now, you might be thinking, hippo what? <laughs> uh, Hippocrates. Hippocrates, he's known today as the father of modern medicine. If, uh, if you've been a pro- medical professionals in your life, you know they take the Hippocratic Oath. That's when they enter the medical field. Uh, they'll do no harm, all these things. That's, that comes back to this guy from basically 2,500 years ago. Uh, and as a father of modern medicine, as, the, as a man of science, Hippocrates, uh, he took some time to observe humans and trying to discover that we're not all the same. We seem to show ourselves differently in the world. We seem to view the world differently. And he identified four primary ways that the soul manifests uh, in our world. And here they are. Uh, Directness, extroversion, pace, and structure. We're going to look at each in a moment. But some of us tend to be more direct. Others of us are more extroverted. Others are more pace. And then lastly, some of us are structured. And maybe a few of us are maybe a combination of all four in some way. But for the purposes of today, I'm going to give you five traits that, expl- that describe each of these four types. Five traits for each of the four types. And I want us to do a little self-assessment. If you've got a phone or a paper, I want you to tally every time one of the traits seems to be fitting for you. Uh, If one of the five traits is fitting, then put a tally for one for that type. But if it's five traits, then put all five. The lowest score you'll have is zero. The highest score will be five. We're not comparing with each other. This is just for you. But here's the first type. Directness. Directness. Uh, D, direct. Direct people focus on what? It's about the task. Um, I use the color red. Red is a very striking color, right? We're driving, we see a stop sign, it's red. It tells you what to do. Uh, Direct people are that way. They're very direct and candid. Uh, They're all about results, control, and solving problems. Direct people act rather than react to their environment. They're not gonna passively wait around for someone else to do it. They're gonna step up and do it themselves. Uh, They are hard driving and decisive. Uh, they'd rather make a decision and move on and not worry about whether it was the right decision, right? You see the, the husband who's driving, he's driving his car and you're like, get a map. doesn't matter. I know where I'm going. That's the direct person. I'm just going to keep going. 
candid and direct. This is the fourth, fourth trait. Candid and direct. Sometimes that directness or that candor can come across as criticism. It gets perceived as criticism, but that's not the intent of the direct person. They'll let you know if they're mad at you. But the direct person is really trying to just get to the point and say it like it is. Uh, and then lastly, they're autonomous and independent. What that means is they don't want you looking over their shoulder while they're getting stuff done. Don't double check on them. Like just leave them alone to do the work. Uh, you know, as kids, they oftentimes uh, would take charge. Maybe they said, hey, this is what we're going to play and this is what we're going to do. Sometimes they became a little bossy. That's a direct child's temperament showing up. Uh, just just for, for sake of giving an example, <clears throat> um, in the Bible, there's a guy by the name of Mark. He wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, I believe he was a direct person. He wrote the, it was the first gospel to hit the market. It's the shortest gospel. All the other gospels are 20 chapters or more. He shows up with 16 chapters. He actually skips the birth of Jesus. He skips all the genealogies and he picks up with Jesus as a grown man entering the ministry. Chapter one. Uh, he also, uh, by the end of chapter one, Jesus has already exercised a demon. So he just gets right to the action. Shortest gospel, he uses the word immediately 41 times in 16 chapters. Immediately, moving on, moving on, moving on. This is just a direct person. Uh, that's a little bit of the direct showing up in, in, a, in a character. Let's look at the next one, extroversion. Extroversion. Did you get your tallies for that? Maybe? Hopefully we're getting that all right. Extroverts, uh, they focus on who? Who? <clears throat> uh, I use the color green because green is on the go. That's the extrovert. They're on the go, whether on their feet or with their mouths, always on the go. Uh, extroverts is all about people, all about teamwork. They are outgoing. <clears throat> They're friendly and cheerful. Uh, they are talkative and fluent. Uh, as kids, they were the kids that told you after you said goodnight to come back and say goodnight again, to come back and say goodnight again. That's an extroverted child. They're enthusiastic, they're excitable, and eclectic. Eclectic here means they have the kind of mind that tries to connect this idea and this idea and this idea that you don't think connects. They find a way to connect those ideas together. Lastly, uh, ultimately, they like people and they want to be liked in return. That's the extrovert. And uh, keeping the theme of gospel writers, I believe John was an extrovert. John, he, uh, he's very people-oriented. In his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he often writes, how I long to see you. Until then, hear some words to you guys. <laughs> That's an extrovert. Uh, he, and unlike the other gospels like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels that kind of keep a chronology and, and kind of tell it in sequence, he doesn't do that. His is more random. His is kind of eclectic. He's tying this theme and this theme and this theme together. And also, he refers to himself not as the one who got things done, but as the one that Jesus loved. Because at the end of the day, it's about relationships for him. Not his accomplishments, but his relationships. So that's extrovert. We got direct, extrovert. Here's pace. Pace is all about when, timing. Uh, the color code for the pace is blue because I want you to think about water, right? Stillness, calm. In, in this way, they're all about timing, harmony, and cooperation. They, they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to cause conflict. They, they want to keep the peace. They're steady. 
They're easygoing and relaxed, and they often appear calm, cool, and collected under pressure. Uh, They have a long fuse, a long fuse. Uh, Think about this as kids, pace kids would rather share than fight, but up until a point. Because as you may know, that long fuse is connected to something. And over a while, you know, here's how it kind of works, right? Here's the, here's the ticking time bomb. We got this long fuse. And even in adulthood, oh yeah, not a big deal, little notch in the fuse. Oh, that's not a big deal, little notch in the fuse, little notch in the fuse until eventually, explosion. You don't see a pace person explode often, but when they do, you know, and they'll tell you about all the times <laughs> that led to that moment. Uh, lastly, uh, not lastly, timing. So they don't like being rushed. Don't like being rushed is because again, it's about deadlines and timing and schedule. Uh, really the calendar is really important to a pace person. So if you want to get in their life, you got to get in their calendar. And then lastly, uh, good memory, good listener. Pace people, uh, they really want to let you know that they value your time and they're going to sit and they're going to listen. They're going to nod their head along the way. Uh, I believe an example of a gospel writer would be Luke. Luke, uh, he's a pace person. Uh, He's got a smooth flow to his writing, a very even pace throughout. He starts the gospel with the family history of Jesus. And then even his genealogy is written in a very uh, tender, kind of compassionate way as opposed to Matthew's. Uh, Lots of people left the apostle Paul over the course of his ministry life uh, because Paul probably was a pretty strong, bold, direct, candid person. Um, But Luke remained with him throughout his years. I think he was an example of a pace peacemaker. That's pace. Lastly, structure. Structure people focus on how we get things done. They focus on how and why. So the color code for structure is yellow. Think the gold standard because ultimately they want to be right, do right, and they hate making mistakes. They're very careful and very accurate in what they do. They double check themselves. And so don't be surprised when they double check you. Uh, They do things by the book, by the book, their book. They have a book, a code that they have cataloged for themselves of the right way to do everything. And so they're just doing it by the book. And you might say, well, that's not right. This is right. Well, you got to help them see that their book is wrong and that this needs to be adapted. And what they want is to do it right. So they'll usually listen to that but they're going to actively resist change unless you can give proof and explanation as to why the change is necessary. Uh, They appreciate knowing the rules. They want the rules. They want expectations and instructions. Um, These people, structure people typically until they've really got a rhythm down, they probably are going to use the recipe for the same uh, meal that they've prepped their whole life. They're going to use that recipe anyway because they want to make sure they get it right. The instruction manual matters to them. Uh, They like to gather facts. They want to, uh, before they make a decision, right? Facts are important because if we don't have all the information, how can we be sure we make the right call? And then lastly, they are naturally good organizers. They like things uh, sorted by category, even if it's just in their own minds. A little little bonus. Uh, As kids, they were the kids that asked why all the time. Well, why does this happen? Well, why does this happen? They're trying to understand the structure around them. Uh, gospel writer, we've done Mark, Luke, and John. So one more left. Who's left? Matthew. Matthew's structure. 
Matthew structure. He provides more proof texts from the Old Testament than anybody else. And he literally starts with his footnotes. He starts with a genealogy of Jesus. Who would start a story about Jesus who died and rose again about the genealogy that, left, that led up to him except a structured person? <laughs> um, literally begins with that. Plus, he's a tax collector, which probably means he was good with numbers and details. So those are just a few evidences. So here we are. Directness, extroversion, pace, and structure. Now, Hippocrates did not use these terms. He used Greek terms like sanguine and melancholy, but these terms were rebranded by a Christian company that I had the pleasure of meeting and learning this material from the owner, Mike Postalway, a few years ago. And um, I, I found it beneficial both personally, but also in helping understand how God's wired us and how we relate to one another as different as we are. Because think about this, right? Think about this. If you've got two different personalities conversing together in a room, if we're not careful, we're going to quickly talk right past each other, won't we? Because if you've got a structured person and they're busy arguing over best practices to get this job done right, and you're direct, you don't want to get bogged down in the details. You just want them to get the job done. Or if there's an extrovert in the room and they're talking and processing like I'm doing right now, talking and processing all this information and you're a pace person and you're secretly maybe wishing that I would just stop using so many words, but you're going to keep nodding your head anyway to keep the peace until I finally go away. So how does each person want to be related to? Let's see. If you're direct... You want people to be direct and get to the point with you. Next slide. You want people to get to the point. Uh, less talk, more action. And you want freedom and options. Here's a tip if you're working with someone who's direct. Don't tell them what to do. Give them options of what they could do and then let them choose. I do this with my son. Uh, do you want to clean your room or do you want to empty the dishwasher? Picks the one. Both need to get done, but I'm going to give him the choice in which one he's going to start with first. That's using your understanding of someone's personality to work with them rather than against them. Uh, a key word here is the word consider. Rather than telling them, hey, I want you to do this, consider this and then let them make the choice to choose that. That's going to help when you're interacting with someone who's direct. Now, if you're an extrovert, what's going to matter to you are people who are interactive and enthusiastic. So you want people to make it about people and exchanging ideas and opinions with you. That's going to matter to you. Uh, you love feedback. So you want people to provide feedback if you're an extrovert. And uh, do so especially not in like an, in a, an accusatory or a critical way, but in a fun and friendly and open way where you're able to converse about it and interact and lastly, you like people to support your intentions. What I mean by that is extroverts, you have lots of ideas, but it helps when someone says, hey, that's a cool idea. Let's do that together. Which by the way, is a great tip if you're working with an extrovert, the words let's and we. If an extrovert is having a hard time getting something done, say, hey, how can we do this together? Or let's work on this or let's try this instead. Those words are very motivating for an extrovert. If you're pace, you want people 
to come to you in a calm, patient, and unhurried way. Don't rush in, don't rush out, right? You want people to prioritize harmony and cooperation. Conflict is poison for you. And so if there's anything that's an issue, you'd rather either pretend it doesn't exist or deal with it right away because conflict kills you inside. And then also you want people to focus on timing and schedule to provide you with deadlines and agree as to when something needs to get done. Don't just come in and say, uh, I need this thing done. That doesn't help me out. Where do I get it done? Tell me by Thursday at 12 p.m. Okay, now I can get it into my schedule. For a pace person, if it's not in their calendar, it's not in their life. So get it into their calendar early rather than rushing them last minute. So as far as a tip goes, avoid raising your voice and avoid uh, rushing them. Generally speaking, they want to keep an even pace. So avoid rushing and avoid raising your voice. Lastly, structured. Support. You love when people support your methods and attention to detail. Uh, you, you like when people give you opportunities to ask questions. Let them ask questions and check the facts because after all, they want to do the right thing. And so if they get all the information and can get all the explanation, that ensures that they'll get it done right. And lastly, uh, you want specific praise. Now, I don't mean up on a stage, give me my award. Most structured people are pretty private. They don't want to, but they, but they would like a one-on-one. Don't just come up and say, hey, good job on that. That means nothing. Of course I did a good job. Uh, I'm, I'm structured. I do it the right way. Be specific, right? Um, good job on this. Your vocal inflection, your ideas, the way you tie those together mattered. Okay, now I can receive that. Now I can tell that as a structured person, you've been paying attention long enough, not just being arbitrary. Uh, a tip. If you've got to make a change in something, structured will resist. So you have to explain why the change needs to happen. Explain why. Be prepared to discuss the facts about why the old method isn't the right approach anymore and that things need to adjust. Because without clear reasoning, the structured person is going to keep saying no to it because they're going to do it by the book. So you got to prove that the book is wrong and it needs to be revised because ultimately the structured person wants to do it the right way. So appeal to that. Hey, I know you want to do this right. So I want to help you do this right. This is going to help you do that. And then give them time to think about it. They may not buy in the first time. So you have to give them some time. Hey, let me, let me, let, let's think about it a little bit. We'll revisit this next week. That's going to help. So as you can see, God has made all of us so unique and different and special. Not wrong, just different. And based on how he's made us, we then get to live out, out of that wiring. Uh, the King Solomon, uh, he said something fascinating about this in Proverbs. This is, uh, we generally misunderstand it though, but Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, <clears throat> Train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Now many misconstrue this verse saying that if you train up a child in something, they will never leave it. Like if you take a kid to Sunday school, every single Sunday, they'll never depart from the faith. But, but experience tells us that that's not necessarily true, right? So what does this verse actually mean? The Bible teacher Chuck Swindoll illuminated this proverb for me that it's actually talking about the way of a child, meaning the child's bent or the child's personality and how it's something so intrinsic and innate within them that our job isn't to try and coax them into some 
other way of operating in this world, but rather to help that child discover how God has made them, to nurture that and inspire them then to live out of this God-given gift within them. Why? Because even when they're old, they're going to return right back to that again. That's their way in this world. So how do we help them live in that way? Because that's going to endure with them for life. And that's why Proverbs 23 says it like this in verse 7. That as someone thinks in their heart, so they are. As one thinks in their heart, so they are. Because our personality is actually hardwired within us, even from childhood. It's this thing that as parents, we look at our kids and we're like, I know exactly what you're like. I just don't know the name for it. Well, that's, that's what it is. We see it emerging within our kids. And it's the tendency that they live out throughout their life. And so it's worth discovering this for ourselves and for those around us. And it's worth taking time then to, to know in what ways we've been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And I know that our self-discovery can border on self-obsession and become a problem. And that is a problem. But just the misuse of it doesn't necessitate that we avoid the subject altogether. We just need to be able to learn how to utilize it rightly. A few weeks ago in Life Team, we were gathered around in a circle, small group in someone's home. We had a meal. We started conversing together about a sermon that was preached here a couple weeks ago on diet and exercise. And a few weeks before that, another sermon was preached on body image. And the point that was made in our group was, wow, they like really went there. But how important is it that we as the church can have these conversations? That we can talk about this, that we don't have to shy away from it because the world's going to talk about this anyway. Everyone's going to talk about this anyway. So can we at least talk about it in a loving community? And frame it with biblical principles so we can understand how we are to operate within this world. Where better than a church family to be able to talk about this and process it together? Because this is the shape of the soul that we are describing here. And something as vulnerable and delicate as the human soul needs to be handled with the utmost care. And so we enter it then with curiosity and compassion that we would then spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And so if you're interested in digging more into self-discovery, you can do so utilizing uh, Management by Strengths. That's the company I mentioned before, Management by Strengths, Christian company here in the KC metro area. They've worked with big companies like Delta Airlines and Mercedes, but Mike and the team have offered us, Heart of Life Church, free access to their online survey and, and database. And so if you are interested, you can take their 10-minute survey. Here's the information, mbsfamily.com, so management by strengths, mbsfamily.com. You're going to click on the free temperament survey. It'll take you about 10 minutes, and you're going to have to fill out some information like your name, email address, uh, the organization is Heart of Life. They'll ask you your position. Like, we, we don't work here. So, I mean, well, some of us do, but you know what I'm talking about. So, maybe say member or, or something like that in the position. And then for the password, write this down, HLC 2014, HLC 2014. 
And after you take the survey, you're going to get a link emailed your way with a basic description plus access to a seven-page document that explains all of this for you. But I'm telling you, if you don't already know this about me, I love this stuff. And so if you want to interact and make this extrovert's joy come to life, then just shoot an email my way, peter at heartoflife.org, peter at heartoflife.org. Just shoot it my way and we can talk, ask as many questions as you want. Or if you're just like, look, I just sent this your way to make you happy. That's fine too. That's okay. Um, Because pulling up the graph one more time, the life that God has for us is more than just moving from one extreme to the other. Not about me, not about just others all the time. Like, what is it? No, he doesn't want us to delete ourselves away. He doesn't want us to revolve everything around us. Instead, God wants to raise us up from the dead. Fully alive in who he has made us to be. Able to love him with all that we are. Able to love others with all that we are. Even our very souls. But we know that this cannot happen through self-discovery alone. And so you have to come back next week as we continue the story. But until then, let me pray for us and we'll sing some more. Lord, you are good. Thank you that you don't make mistakes. Thank you that you don't make trash, but you have fearfully and, and wonderfully made us all. And each of us in our own ways reflect who it is that you are. That you are direct and task oriented in this world and you get things done. And you are extroverted in this world and that it's about people. And you are pace in this world that there's a time and a flow to everything. And you are structured because there is a way in which we are to go. And so we thank you, Lord, that we each get to reflect a piece of that into our world. I pray that you would help us to rightly discover who you've made us to be. And that next week as we return, we would come curious about how you want to work through us in the lives of those around us as we seek to love you and love neighbor with all that we are. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.